great to, great to see you all here. It's good to see some new faces with us. Uh, really glad you're here. If you're here as a visitor, again, just want to warmly welcome you. Uh, you've caught us on the last installment of a sermon series that we've been in this summer, and uh, it's a good time to, to land with us here, and next week we'll start a, a new series. In fact, um, I'll just take a moment to let you know uh, next week, uh, there, so ne- in October, next week's October already, believe it or not, there are five Sundays in October, and so we're going to take those five Sundays and look at um, some, some truths that were birthed out of the Protestant Reformation. Um, for those of you that are familiar with that, you historical uh, buffs out there, uh, you'll know these five truths. But uh, the, the point is not to celebrate our protest as Protestants, uh, but to celebrate some of the deep truths of Scripture. And uh, my attempt, the way I'm going to approach the series, is actually to preach these, these doctrinal things from the tradition um, from the mouth of Jesus. Um, so uh, we're going to look at uh, a handful of narratives in the Gospel of John, and we're going to see how this wasn't really uh, Martin Luther's idea, but this was really Jesus' idea. Um, and so we're going to do that for the next five weeks, so those of you that know, uh, that care where we're headed, that's where we'll be starting next week. Um, this, this Sunday, we're closing up in the book of Psalms, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the Old Testament uh, Psalms. It's you probably smack in the middle of your Bible, uh, or you can just turn it on and swipe there. Uh, we're looking at Psalm 134 uh, this morning. And um, for those of you that have been on us through this, with us for this entire series, we've looked at 15, this is our 15th Psalm, uh, starting in 120 to 134, um, and it's really been this, a journey, um, and it, these are these songs that were written uh, as ancient Israelites were traveling on the road. Uh, they weren't necessarily written while they were on the road, but they were sung while they were on the road to Jerusalem. And... Um, you know, I, I was kind of surveying the series and, and the section, and, and what I love about this, I don't know that there was a ton of intentionality in those who put together the, the, the Bible, um, but in, in Psalm 120, uh, the theme of that song was, was repentance. Uh, that's a word we use uh, to refer to turning towards God, so turning away from something and turning towards God. And so really, Psalm 120 put us on this path towards the end of the journey, which today is Psalm 134, which is all about the blessings of God. And um, I found it just rather fitting. And so I don't know if that was strategic. I I know it was strategic on God's part. Um, But we've come to the end of the road um, of our journey. In fact, for those of you following my sermon titles, I've been calling these uh, after common songs or popular songs, and I was wrestling over what to title this one, and I've called it End of the Road, going, you know, early 90s, you know, middle school dances at Grant Middle School, um, Boys to Men, if you're not singing it in your head yet. There it is. There it is. Feel that? All right. The End of the Road. Let's, um, let's look at Psalm 134 this morning. A Song of Ascents. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Let's pray together. Father, we come once again to your scriptures breathed out from your mouth, inspired 
infallible, without error. And we ask you to help us to understand them. We pray that you would soften our hearts and unplug our ears and open our eyes so that we can see and to believe the treasures that are contained within them. We need your help. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, In his book, Born Again, uh, by Chuck Colson, uh, Chuck Colson, uh, if you're not familiar with him, he was a political strategist in um, Richard Nixon's um, election campaign. And in his book, Born Again, uh, Colson recalls this this narrative of the evening that that Nixon won the presidential election by a landslide. Uh, This is 1972, so for those of us that weren't even alive yet, uh, let me key you into what was going on. Uh, in, In 1972, Richard Nixon wins this landslide of an election. And in his book, Chuck Colson, he recalls these three figures, him being one of them, in the room after they had news of of the the presidential win. Uh, One of them was H.R. Haldeman. He was the chief of staff. Uh, Apparently, in this scene that he's describing, he was just very sullen and even an air of arrogance to him. Um, Richard Nixon was slurping scotch restlessly and unsettled is the way he describes it. So he was kind of uncertain about what was ahead as he won the presidential election. And then Chuck Colson describes himself as let down defeated with a sense of deadness inside of him. And he, he goes on and he describes that room and his own inner turmoil in these terms. He says this, he says, if someone had peered in on us that night from some imaginary peephole in the ceiling of the president's office, what a curious sight it would have been. A victorious president grumbling over words he would grudgingly say to his fallen foe, his chief of staff, angry, surly, and snarling, and the architect of his political strategy sitting in numbed stupor. And so, you know, Colson's describing this odd scenario, this unexpected scene of the fallout of a presidential election. And he goes on and he says this. He said, this is Colson speaking about himself. He says, being part of electing a president was the fondest ambition of my life. For three long years, I had committed everything I had, every ounce of energy to Richard Nixon's cause. Nothing else mattered. We had had no time together as a family, no social life, no no vacations. See, what Chuck Colson is describing is something that I think you and I get. Have you ever worked tirelessly and exhausted yourself over something that you wanted so badly, only at the end to be left disappointed, dissatisfied. Maybe, maybe it was an academic degree that you, you know, poured all of your time and borrowed lots of money for, and you got to the end of that and it left you lacking. Or, or maybe it's the career uh, that you have been just voraciously pacing yourself at, you know, to climb the ladder, to receive the promotions, to move forward in that direction, only to get what you've been working so hard for, and yet still, it's not enough. Or maybe for others of you, it's marriage. Maybe you have, 
you know, walk through the wilderness of single, singleness for so long and you're finally married and you thought all of your dreams would come true and you'd be happily ever after and yet there's still something missing. Maybe for others of you it's children. If we could only have children, if we could fill our home with laughter and joy and messes <laughs> and still it's not enough. Or maybe it's vacation or hobbies or whatever it is for you. Have you ever worked so hard for something only to be disappointed once you finally got it? See, I think when we honestly assess our own faith and our own understanding of who God is, you might not put it this way, but sometimes you might think that at the end of it all, you're going to be disappointed. Like, at the end of this life journey of faith and struggle, at the end of it, you're going to be disappointed that all of the hard work and all of the commitment and all of the sacrifice that you have poured into your faith, ultimately, God's going to be this big letdown for you. See, we as people look for things that won't disappoint us now. So we, as people, are inclined to look for what we would call, if you're Christian, blessings from God that will satisfy us now. And so we look for health and happiness. We look for homes and families. We look for careers and hobbies. We look for all of these things now because underneath all of that is this thin layer that thinks... The end of it all is going to be disappointing anyway. See, Psalm 134 shows us um, that none of the blessings that we experience in this life, blessings they are from God, a gift from His hand, but none of them are enough to keep us satisfied. None of them. Happiness, health, families, jobs, income, vacations, you name it. But what Psalm 134 shows us is that God's blessings will never be enough until God's presence is all you really want. That's what this song is trying to show us. It's it's the end of the road. And at the end of the road stands God himself. And so let's look this morning at this song. A few components to it. There's only three verses, but I think I want to look at one um, one thing from each verse. And so we're going to look, we're going to handle it this way this morning. We're going to look first in verse one at the invitation. Then we're going to look at the command. And then we're going to look at the blessing. So the invitation, the command, and the blessing. Let's look at the invitation in verse one. Um, ironically, uh, the first word of the song, come, in my Bible, my translation, um, is actually an implied word. It's actually not in the the original text. The first word is bless. So it's bless the Lord, and and it's it's in the tense. I'm not going to bore you with that, but it's in the tense that suggests an invitation to come. It's an invitation to come and to bless the Lord. Now, by way of reminder, this invitation was originally extended to people who were on this journey of faith towards Jerusalem. And so the extension of the invitation at the outset is for all people, all of God's people. So for the husband and wife who had the little bickering fight on the way, come. 
for the people that were quarreling with their neighbor who they were traveling up to Jerusalem with? Come. For the parents that were overwhelmed and undone through their children's behavior? Come. For people who were covered in shame and riddled with guilt? Come. For people who were grumbling and complaining and had discontent hearts during the travel of their faith journey? Come. And for people who were exhausted and embarrassed by their inadequacies? The text says to come. All you servants of the Lord, come and bless the Lord. And then more specifically, it goes on in verse 1, to say those who stand by night in the house of the Lord. That's the priests. That's the Levites. That's the ones whom God had assigned the role of representing God's people as they were in Jerusalem. Uh, Levites were on call 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the time. So the Levites were the ones who were invited to come and to represent God's people to come and to bless the Lord. So in recap fashion, let me just make it clear. This first point's fairly straightforward and simple and brief. Who does this song invite to come and to behold and bless the Lord? To anyone who would respond. Anyone. To both the qualified priests and the disqualified servants. To anyone. To anyone who would hear the call to come The song calls them to come. And so, up front, there's an invitation. And let's let's be real. Nobody wants to go to a party you're not invited to. (laughs) Right? You ever been that person? Like, oh, what are you doing here? Um, (laughs) The Lord tells his people to come. All of them, come. But it's not just an invitation that is dependent on our response, look at verse 2. It's a command. Um, let's, let's just unpack. I've done this a couple times in the series, but let's do it again. It's fun. Let's just unpack what this travel would have looked like for the, for the pilgrims that were going to Jerusalem. Uh, this may or may not have been a family event. Uh, could have been men, their wives, and their children. A lot of times it would have just been men. Uh, you get all of the logistics of bringing children on travel. But nonetheless, they're traveling. Some of them for days. Others of them for weeks. And even some recognize probably for months. Um, they had no modern conveniences like we do. Uh, they barely had shoes. Uh, So they certainly didn't have the type of shoes that we wear. Uh, They're pretty much constantly exposed to the elements, so weather, sun, rain, shine, all of that. Uh, They have no access to any medical attention. So when sores come up on feet or, uh, you know, there's infections and, and those types of things. And so you can imagine these people come into Jerusalem limping right? (laughs) Like literally, physically struggling to get there. And when they get there, they're commanded to do something. They're commanded to lift their hands. Now, if you arrived to, to church 
you know, this was church for them. In that condition, <laughs> battered, you know, bruised, broken. If you arrive like that, do you think you would feel like worshiping? <laughs> like, do, you f- do you think like, oh yeah, I just really want to praise the Lord right now? <laughs> like, probably not. I mean, there's, there's probably just this sense of, I just want to rest for a moment, catch my breath, you know, get some bandages of sorts. Um, but the Lord commands them to lift their hands. Uh, it's, it's an imperative. The tense of the word is imperative. It's a command. Um, I know that makes, uh, you know, pocket-tucking Christians a little uncomfortable, but it tells us to lift your hands to the Lord. Here's, here's the problem. You and I, um, we belong, we kind of swim in the, this, this culture of Christianity that says, if I don't feel like worshiping, I'm not going to. You know, if I don't feel spiritual, then if I go and do it, then I'm being hypocritical or I'm being robotic or religious and it's detached and it's forced. And so you and I really fundamentally base our worship on how we feel. And the scriptures would have none of that. (laughs) You see, God does not receive our worship based on our feelings. God is objectively worthy to be praised, regardless of where we're at. He's, he is objectively, objectively worthy to be worshipped. And our feelings are very subjective. In fact, our feelings are very cruel and unpredictable. But God is not. And so I would put it this way. You're not able to command your heart to worship. You don't have that power but you can command your hands. You do not have the ability to work up in and of yourself this spiritual fervor to love God more. You don't. But you do have the ability to lift your arms in praise. See, this this water we're swimming in is um, what a lot of really scholastics and, and kind of Christian scholars call behavior modification. And what behavior modification says to us is that the way to change your behavior is to change your feelings first. And so many of us feel like we need to have that warm, fuzzy kind of buzz in order to go into worship, and that will change our ability to worship better. But what what the passage seems to be suggesting and what the whole witness of the Bible tells us is that the actual the, actually the way to change your feelings first is to change your behavior first. See, it's vice versa. Some would say you have to have the feelings and then your behavior will change. Well, the scriptures seem to be saying change your behavior and then your feelings will change. So think about, I mean, think about the priests for a moment, the Levites. I mean, these are highly religious people. <laughs> these are, these are the, the religious elites of their day. They've been assigned one task to, to, to organize and to delegate all of the temple worship. They're the, they're the professional Christians, as it were, doing all of that work. Do you think they ever felt tired <laughs> or uninspired or exhausted or too tired to do it? You, you better believe it. Um, 
see if this ever sounds like anything you've ever said. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel like going to church, so I'm not going to go. <laughs> so don't feel it today. It's not feeling it. Or, you know, I'm, I'm pretty tired. I don't think community circle is really going to work out for me today. It's just it's been a long day. Kids are, you know, at their ends. I just really want to call it a day. I've been there. I get that. But what the text seems to suggest is that when we say, I don't feel like going to church, we ought to be saying, well, therefore, I better go to church. Or when we say, I'm too tired to be with people, people exhaust me, Um, I can't handle that, well, then I I better be there. Because what the text suggests is that the way our feelings change is through our behavior first. See, feelings are unpredictable. They're cruel. And the command of the song is to overcome our feelings by lifting our hands to the holy place and blessing the Lord. But the, the pinnacle of the song, you know, the climactic chorus that sings through and through is verse 3, May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So let's look at what the blessing is in verse 3. Uh, the Bible uses two main words uh, f- for the word blessing. Um, just kind of compact that for you. There's the word ashray, which means it's kind of that wholeness and well-being of living in tune with your creator. Okay, so that's like Psalm 1, you know, blessed is the man, uh, that, that kind of blessedness. But the second kind of blessedness is, is barakah in the Hebrew. It's this word here. And this word, may the Lord bless you, has everything to do with what God does to us and among us. See, the way this word is used here and throughout the scriptures is that God bends himself to give us himself. And so instead of thinking of categories of blessings from the Lord, like health or happiness or prosperity or relationships or children, all wonderful blessings, what this song is telling us is that the blessing is God himself. Do you know, um, some of you know this, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you know what the Levites' inheritance was? The priests. We're still talking about the priests here. See, in the ancient Israelites, uh, there were 12 tribes, and every tribe was given an allotment of land. It was given a portion of land. That was their inheritance, but not the Levites. The Levites did not get a land inheritance. They got the Lord as their inheritance. Um. So the Lord becomes their inheritance. Now, so, so what would have been the response or, or what should have been the response and the role of the priest? Well, to bless God. Like those who are blessed with God ought to in turn respond by blessing God, praising God. Table that, hang on to that. Fast forward, New Testament. So in the Old Testament, I mention this frequently, there are types and shadows and glimpses that the the Bible gives us of things that were to come. And so you fast forward and you see in the arrival of Jesus, you know, God coming to humanity in the flesh. And, And you ask yourself, well, why did he come? And when he arrived, what did he do? Well, you know, the the witness of the Bible that we have largely contains three years of Jesus' life, okay? 
And in those three years, we see a lot of blessings. We see, um, we see miracles. You know, we see healings. We see things like water turned into wine. We see physically sick people healed. And, and those things were splendid. I mean, they were, they were rejoiced and praised upon. And he did that largely to show his authority on earth. But as you move on, if you're familiar with Jesus in the Gospels, as you move on in his life and he begins to describe what is required to be a follower of his you know, in other words, when, when the miracles kind of came to a settle and the crowds were at an all-time high, and then Jesus began to say things like, in order to follow me, you must pick up your cross and die daily. Right? In order to be one of my followers, you must give everything away and give it to the poor. In order to have me, you must give away everything. How was that received? <laughs> Not well. The, thins, the crowds thinned, right? They dispersed. The blessings weren't enough. And Jesus asked for more of them. So, so we look at that and we say, so if Jesus is God in the flesh and he's come to bend himself from his throne to give us himself, why would he do that? Well, he did it so that he could both empathize with us and then give all of, us, all of himself to us. And so Jesus fully understands the monotony of your life. He understands changing 13 diapers every day. He didn't do it personally, but he understands monotony. He might have changed diapers, I don't know. Um, you know, he understands the mundane rhythms of work and life. He understands all of that monotony. Uh, he understands what it feels like to be underappreciated. You know that, that work report that you've been grinding on for months that's now collecting dust on your supervisor's desk? That kind of underappreciation? Like he knows what that feels like. And so he can empathize with you, and you can empathize with him. He knows suffering and rejection to the highest levels, you know, to not only just being misunderstood and misrepresented in his own religious community, his own people rejected him, but to the highest of highs on the cross of Calvary, where his father turned his face away from him, he understands what it means to suffer and to face persecution, and to face rejection. He can empathize with you, and you can empathize with him. And so what the song is showing us is that the posture of blessing is not just things God does for us, but it's God giving himself to us and making that accessible for his people. God bends down, and he pours all of himself out not only for us, but to have us. You see, the road of faith that these songs have been walking us through is a road that can be traveled through both dark, rainy days and also bright, sunny days. See, the, the faith of God's people from old to new ultimately being fulfilled in the arrival of the person of Jesus is the only faith that will carry you through both good and bad times. Nothing else will be enough. 
No monetary blessing, no financial success, no children. uh, You know, the best children you could ever imagine will never be enough for you. Christ alone is enough for you. So how does the person whose experience in this world is not marked by blessings carry on the road of faith? In other words, if you would characterize your own life as less than blessed, what does this song have to uh, offer you? Um, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. We have just got to the point before Isabel arrived where we began uh, doing some road travel with the, with the boys. We've done a couple road trips, and um, our experience has been all over the place. I mean, we've taken long drives when they were young, when we moved from Mississippi to California. Uh, we just had Jaden on that one. Um, but, but you all know the tyranny of road trips, right? Like, it's, it's like hit and miss, you know, good moments, bad moments. But um, whether you're with children or you're just with friends or your spouse or whatever, when you're traveling on vacation, you're going somewhere, what is better, driving to the place and arriving or driving back home from it? It's always driving to, right? Like nobody ever thinks about the back end of the journey, like, or you try not to think about it because there's, not, there's nothing exciting to come home to. Like you're coming home to bills and laundry, just for days and meals and work. And so you try to prolong that. But the traveling to the destination is always the best. See, for the believer, we are on a traveling journey. And we are going to something much better. And the question this song begs of us to answer is, what is at the end of the road? What, what is waiting for us, and will it disappoint us? And the reality is, there are two options at the end of that road, and let me be very clear about this. There are only two. Option one, at the end of this journey, is the person who has largely lived their life without reference to God. He may have been a, you know, a bypassing prayer in a moment of crisis, or he may have been just a... a, a glimpsing thought on an occasional Sunday morning, but by and large, option one ends with the person who has lived their life without reference to God. And at the end of that road is exactly what that person wants, life without God. Exactly the thing that their entire life has been paved for will meet them at the end, a life separated from all goodness, loving kindness, mercy forevermore. But option two, and in my opinion, a much better option, is the person who is trusted during their journey, as difficult as it may be, trusted in the Lord, who has blessed God when both times were good and times were bad, when they've lifted their hands, when they could not do anything else, when they went to church, when they didn't feel like it, when they pursued community, when it was exhausting to them. At the end of that road, you might actually not get what you expected because many of us think at the end of that road is just, you know, gold-laced roads with a few family members that we've lost and some singing angels, right? Like, by and large, we kind of, that is the depth of our understanding of what's awaiting us. And quite honestly, that's pretty disappointing. But at the end of the road that the Bible describes 
is cosmic levels of closeness with the God who knows you and loves you. Like, I know you've heard this, that that God loves you. And it's grown weary and tired on you. But let let me twist it and take it to another level. The end of the road that the Bible describes is not just a God who loves you, but a God who also likes you. Like, like it's one thing to affirm the general love of the creator. You feel like he's obligated to do that. But the scriptures testify to a God who actually likes you and wants to be with you. Like he knows you in all of your hidden secrets. He knows you in all of your dark shame. He knows all of the guilty rags that cover you from your secret thought life and patterns. Yet he likes you because of what Christ did for you. So at the end of that road is not this judge looking to drop the gavel on your unethical and lack of morality in living, but rather this God who has provided a perfect robe of righteousness who sits at the end of the road saying, come home to me and be with me forever. It's the great joy of the believer It's the great joy of the end of the road is a father who both loves you and likes you. That God is worthy to be blessed. Let's pray. Father, many of us have been hearing the good news about your son for years. Yet, Lord, it's still shouldn't cease to amaze us, that you can both love and like us. Lord, that you were under no obligation to come and rescue us from our sinfulness. That you, you know, that you didn't have to uphold mercy and grace, that you could have just delivered justice to us. But Lord, we thank you that at the end of the road is waiting for us, not a judge to condemn, but a father to embrace. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we walk this journey filled with both joy and sadness, with both delight and dark times, Lord, that you would help us to look at the end of the road and that we would know we'll never be disappointed there. Give us faithfulness and perseverance to walk that road by faith in your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.